0: for, and uh, certainly enjoyed reading these and studying and getting prepared for tonight. Um, It just never gets old. Um, There's something, as as you watch the world go in a slow descent into madness, it's it's, uh, so, you feel so grounded when you're studying His Word, you know, it's so normal, it's so loving, it's so perfect, it's so... um, I don't know. You just you you just feel that sense of comfort, um, knowing that this is the sword of the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit is called our Comforter. Um, it just it just does, and so I hope that you are comforted tonight as we get into this. Even though there is some contentions here with John the Baptist and calling them broods of vipers and things like that, it's it's a it's normal conversation. This is normal spiritual conversation that John goes through here tonight. I think that surprises us sometimes, as we get this funny shade of Christianity that just isn't true, honestly. Um, It's nice to read the Gospels and say, oh, so that's what it looked like on the ground, you know? Um, Ground zero, when Jesus was walking the earth for three and a half years of ministry, this is what it looked like. And it was not necessarily the shade of Christianity that we see today. And, uh, and, and it, it makes me feel, I don't know, comfortable. So I know I've said that, but it just does. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your comforter, the Holy Spirit, who's sent to lead and guide us into all truth. We pray that you do that tonight. As we surrender our hearts to you and open ourselves up to anything you have for us, um, help us to know you better, Jesus, by the end of the night. In Jesus' name, amen. They've had quite a trip so far. Jesus um, makes uh, quite a trek from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth, and he's grown up now. It's it's a big gap here between chapters 2 and 3. Not much is learned. Uh, we've got a couple stories when he was 12, you know, when he uh, found himself separated from his parents on purpose. It was by design. Jesus had decided to stay in the temple and uh, the parents were frantically looking for him. You know, they'd lost God. <laughs> it's not, oops. And uh, and they found him in the temple, and he says, where do you think I should have been? I'm in my father's house, you know. Um, and, and already at that time, at the age of 12, Jesus knew who he was and what he was called to do. Now, we're not Jesus. I understand that. But um, on a side note, I think that's important to know about our kids, that they can know where they need to be and what they need to be doing for God by the age of 12. I don't think that's unreasonable. A lot of people um, don't think that, that they're not able to make those decisions or understand what God has for them or to have even that awareness of spiritual things necessarily. But I disagree. I think Jesus is, is our example. What he, what happened there in the temple wasn't just um, a, a, a supernatural strange moment, you know, where Joseph and Mary realized they, they had someone bigger and better and larger than life on their hands uh, being God come in the flesh but Jesus was truly setting the example his entire life that being born in a major doesn't disqualify you from God's ministry that that uh, having to flee and go to other countries and avoid evil isn't um, cowardice it's 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 strategy and in when he's 12 years old finding himself in the beating the Pharisees and the Sadducees with knowledge about God and knowledge about His Word, honestly, if you've met some of the pastors I've met in the past, our Sunday school teachers and Sunday school students at times, would put them to shame. It's interesting. What studying the Word of God, what learning of the Lord, week in and week out, spending time and then applying it to our lives, what that'll do for a person. And so Jesus at the age of 12... uh, Knows, and I think our kids can know as well um, and move on with God. I just, I'd hate to hold them back. Um, maybe we started late in life as adults walking with the Lord. I know I did. Um, but it doesn't mean our kids have to start that late in life. There's nothing wrong with them getting right in there and doing it. So, that is in between chapters two and three in another gospel. So chapter three, you pick up with Jesus um, coming to get baptized by his cousin John. John's six months older, if you didn't know that, Jesus his cousin. They've grown up together, they've had family meals together. I know that John was raised out in the wilderness, and, but certainly they knew each other and recognized each other. and on occasion throughout those uh, you know thirty three years, at one point or another or thirty years, they they ran into each other and spent some time together. And so that's where we pick up. Cousin John is doing what he was called to do. His dad had gotten a prophecy about him while serving the Lord from a messenger of God, from an angel. And he is fulfilling that ministry now. He, John the Baptist is the original homeschooler. Uh, <laughs> stayed in the wilderness, separated, isolated, you know, didn't socialize very well. <laughs> uh, Ellie he wears camels here and eats locusts and wild honey. They, you know, I don't, I don't know how well they did, but... Um, that's where he is. He's he's uh independent from the world. And some say that makes him weird. But to be heavenly minded like that, and to be have the heart of God for people is a is a is a really good combination in this world. To be heavenly minded, knowing where your eternity is, knowing what you're here on this earth to do, not entangled with the things of this world, eating grasshoppers and honey and wearing the A belt with some camel's hair over you really gives you that sense of freedom to do whatever God's called you to do, and it works. Because, honestly, eternity is a lot longer than our 80-plus years on this world. These 80 years on this world is nothing but a blip compared, and we spend the majority of our time preparing for that 80 years as opposed to preparing for the eternity afterwards. How much more important that is. I'm not saying we don't want to do the, the school thing. Of course we do. We don't we want our kids to be able to read and to write and to do math and to have all those life skills that are going to be important to them and to help them in this world. But if I haven't prepared them for eternity, I've prepared them for hell, and they can do math. you know. So the priorities here um, I think are glaring and important to, to take note of. Verse 1. <laughs> It's a long introduction, wasn't it? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, exclamation points. He was a yeller. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's out of Isaiah 40. Now John himself was clothed with camel's hair the leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And that's what that looks like. That's what turning to the Lord looks like. That's what repentance looks like. Uh, Because the kingdom of God is at hand, is what John would say, you need to repent, and repent simply means to turn around or turn the other direction very simple concept. God doesn't make it hard. He doesn't make it difficult. It just means you need to turn towards God. And in fact, that's what um, the scriptures tell us in Acts 20, 20. uh, Paul writing there, um, or Luke was writing, but Paul was the one speaking, said, "I, I have told everybody that I know to repent towards God. Now, we learn to repent from sin, and that's true, but it's, it's, the, it's the same thing. To repent of your sin is to turn towards God. Um, and so that's what John the Baptist is saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to repent. You need to turn towards God. You need to let him be your king. And once you have repented of your sins, once you've asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you're a born-again believer. He is your king. He's the ruler of your soul. You're in the kingdom of heaven. That's it. You're there. You're being ruled by your king at that point. Now, we are ambassadors here in a foreign land, this world, that's being ruled by another God, but we're serving our true God who will be with for eternity. And so for those of us in the crowd here uh, tonight who have turned towards the Lord, you're being ruled by God. You're in the kingdom of heaven. You're just an ambassador at this point. And so keep that in mind. It, It does help make decisions. It helps you walk each day as to how you should respond to people. That I'm here to represent my king wherever I go. What I do, what I say, how I act, it all needs to represent my commander, my king, the one who rules over my soul. And so John's simple message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no more time to wait. Don't. He's, He's coming. He's here. It's happening. And so I want you to turn from that. And he's fulfilling a prophecy, Matthew wants us to know. This is the one that we've been waiting on. Now, if that's the fulfillment of that prophecy, I don't have time to go into it tonight, but that prophecy leads to another one, which leads to another one, which leads to another one. So once you understand that Matthew understood this prophecy, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, applies to Jesus Christ or applies to himself. He's the one doing it. John the Baptist is the one preaching these things. There can be no other, and therefore all the prophecies assigned to this or connected to this have already been fulfilled and uh, that's important because that means that if he wasn't the right one, then there, mean, there is no other one. There's no opportunity to get saved. Christ was, Jesus was the Christ. And if missed, then missed. There is no other to come after him. Now, he was wearing what he was wearing. They described that to show that he has a lack of interest in the things of this world. It's just not, it's just not important to him. looks like a prophet. Jesus, at one point says that John was the greatest prophet that ever lived and never performed one miracle. never one miracle. No signs, no wonders, just a powerful message, the truth shared in love. And he told people to turn turn towards God. Wearing the unusual clothes that he wore, you know that he wore, some people were drawn to his unique appearance. and a couple times, who did you come out to see? a, a, a reed blowing in the wind? You know, have you come to look at the spectacle that I am? Or did you come to get saved? And he was never afraid to call people on that. I think I get afraid to call people on that sometimes. And and John would call them on that. He calls out the disciples here as these people are coming and confessing their sin and getting baptized. And there's a question about that. What is water baptism? What's the point of this? Water baptism, the water represents the ground, and we know that, I think. Everybody knows that, but I'll hopefully give you a different, a little more insight into this. Why the Jordan water? Why is that important? I mean, you could get baptized in any water. Don't get me wrong. Uh, When Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. Just any body of water is fine. But the Jordan has some specific um, implications When the nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, but they also came all the way around from the east to come across this Jordan River into the promised land. And so what was supposed to happen at that Jordan River crossing was this is the death of your old life. This is the beginning of your new life. And so many stopped right there and would not go to the new life, would not die to themselves, would not trust in the Lord and walk by faith and let God win their battles and let God provide for them and let the Lord, you know, do all the things he had planned for them. And they would stop there. First time they came around, the 12 spies went in and two spies, Caleb and Joshua, were like, man, we should go. This is great. God is with us. And the other 10 said, no way. And the people sided with those 10 spies and the whole nation of Israel wanders around in the wilderness over here unwilling to die to themselves and trusting in God. And the world is like that. They're over here. They're wondering. This is an important step to go through this, Jordan. It's an important step to go into the water and come back out of the water. It's an important step to die to yourself. A lot of times you'll get people that consider the water baptism a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance, and they get baptized and they get baptized and they get baptized over and over again when really you're just in rebellion in the promised land. (laughs) You need to be baptized once, you're saved, you're born again, now you're just messing up and you need to get things right and turn back to the Lord. You don't need to go back over the Jordan and try this again. maybe it didn't work. That's not it. You've made a decision that I'm no longer going to live for myself and trust my own instincts. I'm going to die to myself through the Jordan River being baptized and come out on the other side and walk in the spirit that I might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's that turning towards God, turning away from sin. If I'm walking in the Spirit, I don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We spend a lot of time worrying about not sinning and less time worrying about just walking with the Lord. Or if I just focus on walking with the Lord, I'll find myself not sinning. It's very simple. Idle hands are the work of the devil, right? Or the the devil's, I don't even know the phrase anymore because it's not biblical, but we use that. And it's true in a sense that when I'm not doing for God, what he's called me to do, and I find myself idle spiritually or physically, I find myself doing the work of my flesh or the enemy, Satan himself. And so we walk in the spirit. So they confess their sins. They know they're rebellious. They know they've been away from God they are turning away from their sin they're walking towards the Lord they're being baptized confessing their sin and coming out of the water and they're coming from all over the place from Jerusalem Judea all the regions around the Jordan they're all coming convenience wasn't an issue for them I'll, I'll get baptized as soon as John comes a little closer to Jerusalem, or I'll, I'll do this when, when it's a little more convenient. He's, he's kind of out there. I mean, does he have a tour? Is he stopping in Bethlehem anytime soon? Is he stopping in Caesarea, Philippi? Is he, is he, is he moving around, or is he just going to stay in that one location? I have to go down there to see him? That wasn't an issue. It was that important to them. That they go see this one crying out in the wilderness, and to return to the Lord, to go back to him. There needs to be a little bit of effort. There needs to be a heart and a desire to go that far, you know? It doesn't have to be convenient. Verse 7, but when he saw, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now that's not seeker-friendly, you know? Aren't you excited that these guys are there? There must have been something about their mannerisms where they weren't getting down into the water at all. They were just observing. They were just watching. And maybe in some ways intimidating. Now remember, these are the religious rulers of the day, and you've got people leaving Jerusalem and Judea and all these areas to come get baptized to repent. And these guys, being jealous guys, may have been standing there saying, Bob, why are you getting baptized? I'm just trying to return to the Lord. You don't need this. You don't need this. You know, Just naysayers. And so John doesn't let him sit there. He doesn't let him intimidate. He doesn't let them just be observers. It's not okay to be a pew sitter. It's not okay to be someone who sneaks in and pretends. The Pharisees were very legalistic. That was their whole mission was to stay pure to the law and to not defile themselves in any way to the point where they would strain at a gnat, they say. You'll choke on a camel, but you'll strain at a gnat. In other words, um, they had so much of their sin in their lives, but if they found a bug flying into their mouth, they'd spend all day just trying to choke it out so the world around them could see that I'm still kosher. I haven't eaten anything that creeps or crawls upon the earth. Very dramatic, you know, in their legalism. And they thought that's what brought them closer to God, their ability to keep the law. And we still have that mentality around us today. The Sadducees are an interesting group. They didn't believe in many of the things we believe in. They didn't believe in mainly the resurrection. And I'm going to let that sit there for a little bit because you're a part of a religious system that thinks when you die, you just turn to worm food and there is nothing after death. And yet you spend your whole life worshiping a God that you won't even know existed once you die because you turn to nothing. You evaporate. You become, well, annihilated is what they believed. So there was no, there was no understanding of, of the resurrection. So these two groups that didn't get along with each other at all, they were at odds with one another all the time, were coming and sitting at these baptisms, and John calls them on it and says, I don't think this is appropriate for you guys to be sitting here just watching. Who told you to come here? Therefore, if you're going to be here, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't tell me that you're out here. Don't tell me that you're right with God. Show it through the fruit of your life. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. When you say that, you're no better than the stones. So now what do you have? At one point in Scripture, it tells us that... um, well, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, Well, even the demons believe and tremble. Even the demons know that much. That's not enough to know that Jesus is the Christ, to know, is he your Lord and Savior? Is he your King? Do you worship him in spirit and truth? Or are you a born again believer? Because if you're anything short of those three things, then you're no better than these stones or Pharisees or Sadducees or, in fact, Satan himself. Something has to change. This is the message that I needed to hear when I was growing up. I grew up in a church that just assumed that after christening, you're saved. That was it. There's nothing more to it. We made you a member of the church when you were a little baby, when you didn't have a choice. And I grew up knowing that and understanding that and believing that. Until finally I had a brother who was a Baptist. Pull me aside and night after night in a very loving way, well as loving as he could come up with anyway. Why do you think you're saved? You called me out on it. Well, I don't know. I just, I am because I got baptized. So that's not what saves you. I mean, was he wasn't, you know, polished at all, which is good, but I'd lay in bed thinking about that. And well, I guess I never thought I needed to do anything other than that. And there was this moment with this guy that God had roomed me with wake me up. And that's all John's trying to do. Wake up. Now, some of these guys are going to get it. At the end, we know that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's part of that Sanhedrin. He's part of that religious ruling group. Probably, maybe one of these guys here that gets chewed out by John. And he wants to know what it is that Jesus has. And he, I know you're a great teacher, but he just couldn't get his, he couldn't get his hands on. It. He couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And he says, you're not going to understand unless you're born again you have got to be born again, Nick. And we know that later on he helps him um, get buried. We know that he's a believer anyway. These moments need to take place. There are times for loving and caring, and then there's a time to be in someone's face saying, look, you need to be saved, and you're not. And if you are, then you need to start bearing fruits worthy of salvation, of repentance, because it certainly doesn't look like it. Your life looks like it did before you met Jesus then. If you're saying you're born again, what's different about you from that moment when you believed? Or are you the same exact person with a baptismal card in your wallet now? Because that doesn't do it then. So John calls him on that, and that needs to happen. Everybody needs that. I've got kids that are raised in a church. You have some kids that are raised in a church. We best be careful that we don't think that that saved them. They're as much a heathen and an unbeliever and going to hell as anybody else in the crowd that walks in off the street. Just because they attended Sunday school doesn't mean they're a born-again believer. They personally have to make that decision to accept Christ. They need to see for themselves that I am not who I'm supposed to be in Christ. They need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. They need to look like people who love God and walk with God, and not when they're seen by mom and dad, but all the time in their lives. A devotion and a passion and a love for God. That needs to happen. This is for everybody. Anyway, you're no better than stones, John says in his beautiful message of salvation to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water into repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Lots of baptisms in the Bible. Water baptism is one of them, but being baptized with the Holy Spirit is another. Being baptized with fire is another. What's that all about? Well, I think Peter alludes to that. Don't consider it strange when fiery trials come upon you, which are meant to refine you. They're supposed to be there. I need you to be harder. I need you to be more sharp, God says. And as a wonderful blacksmith, he knows how to do it. Sometimes it's the hammer. Sometimes it's a a sharpening. Sometimes it's heat. But whatever he does, he does for our good. It's a lot of baptisms, John says. I'm just doing the water one, but there's someone coming after me that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is all said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time. They're the ones, they're the audience. Now he's got quite a crowd probably listening to him chew these guys out publicly which they've never heard before either. All the people getting baptized, watching John saying, John, easy, man. I wonder if John's speech was a little too emphatic for some of the people out there. A little too pointed, a little too harsh, a little too sharp. Certainly he's felt that pressure. He doesn't care. He's got to say what's on his heart. He has to say what God's called him to do, what God's called him to say. He has to do it. And For some, it'll be too much. Jesus mentioned about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, and he lost all of his disciples except for 12. This is a hard saying, they said. Even Jesus went overboard there. What are you talking about? You need to know Jesus well enough that if he says something that seems strange or harsh to you, knowing that he's not, stick around, and maybe he'll define it for you help you understand it give you an interpretation. And so he looked at Peter and the other 12 guys. He says, are you guys going to leave also? And they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, we would don't know what you're saying either. We're no better than they are. We don't get it. But we know that if we stick around, it's the right thing to do. And sure enough, the next chapter, he explains it. It's my broken body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. You have to eat this new broken body. You have to understand that my body has to be broken. You have to drink and absorb the fact that my blood has to be shed for your sins. You need to get that into every area of your life. you know. But for 70 of them, they all had to walk away. John is going overboard here. It's a lot to take in. He's telling them there is a difference between wheat and chaff, and you're the chaff right now. You're the ones going to the fire. You're the ones going to hell. And the wheat's going to stay. I made a distinction between those getting baptized and those sitting on the sidelines wondering what in the world are these people doing? Sometimes it's hard to be a spectacle. Sometimes it's hard to be the one in the water in this world. Sometimes it's hard to be the one carrying the torch. Because you get some people that just love the light and are drawn to it, and you got others wondering what in the world are you doing? And they look at you. But you have to remember who they are. They're the, Sadducees, they're the Sadducees. They're the Pharisees. They're the ones that think they know better, and they don't. They're the most lost in the crowd because they don't even know they need to get into the water. You see. You Anyway, there's someone coming. Well, here he comes. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, "I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to be? Now, I don't know what baptism he's talking about, except water baptism because John was filled with the spirit from the womb. Remember that leaping for joy in her womb when she met Mary and uh, Mary had Jesus in her in her womb as well. and John's already getting Pentecostal inside the womb, you know jumping around and leaping and getting excited. But John felt very uncomfortable baptizing Jesus with water. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you kind of came here set, you know? I thought you came ready. What are you repenting of? What are you turning from? You know? John gives, or Jesus gives him a very straightforward answer. He answered and said to him, permit it to be so so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. What a funny four words it seems like the h's are capitalized on the wrong pronouns there right it should be then he capital he jesus allowed him john it's not that way it's john the baptist allowed jesus interesting i take that to heart it's one of the things that spoke to my heart as i was studying here There's a lot of things that I need to let Jesus do in my life. There's a lot of things I need to allow. And there's a lot of things that means he's waiting for permission to do in my life. To take. To keep. To move me. To direct me. To change me. He's a gentleman. John, this needs to happen. This has to fulfill all righteousness. I have to be the perfect example. People need to see what this looks like. I need to do this. I need to be filled with the Spirit, too. I need to be tempted by the devil like everybody else. I need to have victory over all the things that you need to have victory over. I need to walk in the Spirit that I don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I need to do miracles and signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit like you're going to do signs and wonders. I need to do all this. This all has to be an example. And so John, understanding that as much as he probably could, said, Okay, I'll do it. But he had to be willing to baptize Jesus. And I think there's some things in our lives that we need to be willing to let Jesus do in our lives. He's asking, and maybe you know specifically, maybe the Holy Spirit right now is convicting you and saying, I've been waiting for a long time to have permission to this area. I'm not going to force my way into it. I'd like to forgive you for that sin, but you have to let me forgive you for that sin. You have to receive it. I'd like to change this and take this away from you in your life, but you have to let me take this away from you. I'd like to put this into your life, but you have to open up and let that space be available for me to put that in your life. Let me do it. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have the Trinity here. We have the triune God. We have the Son being baptized. We have the Father's voice from heaven. And we have the dove of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Three separate, but one God. God. Now later on we've discussed this at another time a different Bible study that he says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Later on he says on the Mount of Transfiguration hear him. He kind of assumed they understood that as everybody's watching and they see this Holy Spirit come down and they see the heavens open up and a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And everybody hearing that would understand we need to follow this guy. But they didn't. Later on he has to emphasize it hear him then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil remember he was tempted but he didn't sin and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward he was hungry i bet he was now i kind of think sometimes in in my mind well of course he of course he could do that he's jesus I say that a lot about him, but I have to remind myself that he is walking the walk that I can walk and that you can walk. I'm not prescribing 40 days of fasting for anybody here. But I am saying that what he's doing here is making his flesh so weak and vulnerable that now is the time for him in this weak, vulnerable state to listen to all the temptations that may come his way and to still follow God no matter how weak, no matter how hungry, no matter how alone he is, he is there to do his father's will. There's nobody here with him. There's no group. There's nobody patting him on the back. Later on, after he has victory over all these temptations, the angels come and minister him to him. We know that. But please understand that when you feel like you're alone in the battle, like nobody understands, and that you can't get someone to grasp the problems that you have because they're greater than, than you can bear, you're not given anything more than you can bear. And you're not alone, but you're not with people. You're with God. The Lord has filled Jesus with his Holy Spirit. He is walking the walk. He's able to withstand the temptations of the devil. Nothing that's coming against Jesus is unusual. It's all something we have to deal with. But we, being filled with the Spirit, have the same obligation to deny our flesh and to walk in the Spirit, but also the ability to, I can say no to sin. There is no temptation that's that, that can come over me uh, unless I allow it. I think that's where those four words come in. And then JD allowed sin to enter his life. Or I can say then JD allowed God to enter his life, you know? Then JD made the decision to follow after his flesh, then JD made the decision to follow after God. These are all mine. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I know exactly what to do. He's filled us with the Spirit. He's given us convictions. He gives us opportunities. He always provides a way of escape. These are scriptures that God gives us. None of us are with we none of us have excuses. I was raised that way. I grew up that way. I have bigger problems than everybody else. You don't. You don't. Anyway, he's at his weakest point physically. And so he's hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, challenging, you know, command that these stones become bread, prove it to me, Satan says. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He uses scripture. Jesus doesn't say, I am the Son of God, be gone. Goat, or whatever he looked like at the time. No, I'm going to quote God's word at Satan and tell him I'm going to obey God's word. I'm not going to obey your word, Satan. The thing that sustains me is not the food that I could make out of this stone. The thing that sustains me is God's word. That's what sustains me. Then the devil took him up to the holy city set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up. True. It does say that. Devils figured it out. Lest you dash your foot against the stone. Fine, we're going to use God's word. I know his word better than you do. Probably not. Jesus wrote it, but for us... Satan knows God's word better than we do. He's not surprised. And so I'm not surprised when he uses God's word and twists it for his own advantage here. Okay, okay, we're using God's word. Well, throw yourself down if you're the son of God because it says that he's going to protect you. Well, you must need to be protected from something. Why don't you give him something to protect you from and throw yourself down and prove it. Let's see these angels pop out of nowhere and keep you from hitting the ground and Jesus said to him it is written again you shall not tempt the lord your god that's something i struggled with for a long time you know i make the joke about david kind of throwing himself into harm's way to see if god will protect him or so david didn't just look for adventure in spirituality and decide i'm going to see what god will do for me here and dive in he did it on purpose because someone was in trouble Sheep were getting eaten, so I throw myself into harm's way to protect them. There was a need, there was a necessity. I didn't think of myself, I only thought of those victims, and so I stepped in and God gave me victory. It's a big difference than just spiritual thrill seekers, you know. You think about the guys down in the Ozarks that are playing with rattlesnakes and, and drinking, you know, whatever they were drinking to see that see, no, no, no vipers gonna I don't know what accent they have, but it had to be a dumb one um and I, and i and i'm not afraid to say that about them that's that's tempting god that's taking something from scripture some guy at that church decided to read one passage that says the vipers won't hurt us and no if you drink any poison it won't hurt you therefore let's see no that's not what it means it's like david Or Paul, when he reached in, he's collecting firewood for all the. They've been this huge shipwreck. Everybody's freezing to death. Everybody's been soaked in the water, and he goes to collect firewood for everybody else. Maybe he was made to because he was a prisoner. But anyway, he picks up a bundle and gets bit. A viper bites him, and he just shakes it off into the fire. And everybody's watched him because they know what kind of viper that was. And they said, "You should be dead. You're not dead." I guess I'm not dead. You need more wood? He doesn't even consider it, you know? God protects us from that kind of viper. We pray over our food because God protects us from getting poisoned by that food or whatever. We, <clears throat> we do that. But we do it on with a purpose in mind, not just to tempt God. And so Jesus says it's written, I'm not going to tempt the Lord your God. That That supersedes your verse. Of course they'll do that for me. But only if some weird thing happens to me, and then they'll step in and do that. I'm not going to do it on purpose. You don't tempt the Lord. I don't want to tempt the If I can avoid evil, i avoid evil. If I can avoid traps and snares that Satan lays out for me, I don't try to tiptoe through them or jump on top of them and see this, this thing can't get me. I to walk around it. I learned that. Again, the devil took him up on the exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down, fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, He shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. After all that, after many things here and and if you've been studying god's word for any amount of time this is maybe one of the things you've run across but we'll do it again jesus doesn't say to him you don't have the authority to give me these things he doesn't question that about him because satan does have the authority to give the kingdoms of this world to whomever will worship him the god of this age the god of this world the god of the air okay several times in scripture it tells us Satan is the ruling force on this earth right now we live in a dark depraved world I think we know that and that's why we're called lights in this dark depraved world it's not because this is a godly world and we're just bright lights in this godly world no it's a dark world ruled by Satan at this time and Jesus is coming back and the brightness of his glory destroys everything and brings about his kingdom and everlasting peace you know And so Jesus doesn't challenge the fact that Satan can do that, and nor should we be surprised when we see nations doing the bidding of Satan. I can't believe they wrote that executive order. I'm not surprised in the least. I'm surprised they didn't do it 20 years ago. I'm surprised they waited this long. It's just darker and darker, and it makes you stand out more and more. No, his response was very simple. Away with you. I'm not worshiping you. No matter how dark this place is, no matter how hungry I am, no matter what you can offer me, I don't do this for my glory. That would bring me glory temporarily, but bring you honor you don't deserve, and I'm not going to do either of those two things. And so, no, I'm going to go the way that God's called me to go. You could avoid the cross if you just bow down and worship me. And that's a temptation, isn't it? You can still be in favor. You can still be blessed. You can still have all these things. Just don't worship God. Worship me. Because what God has in store for you and for me is a cross that we have to bear. And we bear that cross because God's worthy of bearing that cross. And that's what Jesus says to him. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And he left. He did. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. James tells us. But you got to resist. Resist. Verse 12, now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, by the Jordan of Galilee and of of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region of shadow and of death, light has dawned. And that's that's a passage out of Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. So when he went there, that fulfilled that scripture. Notice how Matthew's taking us all the way through these prophecies. Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth, and now Zebulun and Naphtali, and all these things are being fulfilled. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting. Same message. Still, what he does, still calls us. And Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. They were kind of ready, they were prepared. Maybe they were sick of their jobs. Maybe they knew they needed to change. Maybe God had slowly begun to work in the heart. I know that's what God has done with me in the past. When there's a move, when there's something that's going to be changed in my life, he'll already start giving me those feelings and and thoughts of, I just don't feel like I used to here. I mean, I know when I first got to this place or this thing, I was all about it. And now I'm just kind of like, I don't know anymore. It's not as interesting to me. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, the option comes or the opportunity comes to go and do something different, and God's in that. I mean, because who leaves off of one sentence, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, done, (laughs) and walks away. No 401K plan, no, no assurances of financial security. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Hard thing to leave parents. It's a hard thing to leave family businesses or whatever it may be. It's a hard thing when you do something different than what the families used to. Imagine, imagine their dad sitting in that boat. Where are you boys going? Uh, you know. Because Dad didn't follow, Dad stayed hard. Nevertheless, they went anyway. I I can't worry about the feelings of relatives. I love them. I want them to understand. I want them to have the same heart that I do for God. I want them to be led of the Spirit in their own way. You know, in other words. The way God leads them, that's the way they need to go. And I need them, and I hope for them to understand what God's leading me to do. But it's not required. And many times in Scripture, you'll find that people get at odds with relatives when they decide to follow hard after Jesus. And the relatives don't quite get it. They don't quite understand it. What is this? They don't know what to say. All I know is I have to go, Dad. We have to go. And they do. But it left Dad bewildered, you know, because he doesn't follow after them. He could have gone too, but he doesn't for some reason. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Beautiful. Cared for him, loved them. It wasn't about uh, if you get healed from this disease, you come to know Christ. There's no bargaining. It was just you have a need, you're hurting I want you to be well. He would heal people that would rat him out. Remember the guy caught at that pool who was sitting in the way back, and whenever the angels stirred the water, they'd all gimp down to the water to see who could get in there first to get healed. And this guy was clear at the top of the hill. And hey, what are you doing back here? Why don't you do-? Well, every time I try to get to the water, people get there before me. Well, that and you're 5,000 steps from the pool. Why don't you rise and take up your bed and walk? I got an easier way. You don't have to get down there. Why don't we just do that right here? And he picks up his bed and he walks. And as soon as he gets called out for it, he rats Jesus out. He must have had some kind of gig going on up there. We have it from up here. I get alms. I get people dropping coins in my hat. You know, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but he throws Jesus under the bus. And Jesus doesn't heal people because they're going to do the right thing. He just he just does. He just heals them. And he's healing all these people because they're in need. He saw he has compassion for them. All kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea. Beyond the Jordan, there was something about him, and it wasn't just for the healings. Some of them were just coming for the healing. Some were just coming for the food, five loaves and two fish kind of folks. Neat miracle and see if he'll do another trick, you know, kind of thing. That kind of following of Jesus. See what's next on the supernatural front. But many were touched and changed because of the compassion. Not a lot of compassion back then. In a lot of ways, so many sick people, it's kind of hard not to just say, there's another sick person. There's another person sleeping on the street. There's another person. I mean, to the point where you're just numb to it, you know. Sometimes us rural folks, we, we, we hear these stories about the city folk and how somebody's getting beat up on a train someplace and people stood there and watched and didn't do anything about it. We're like, who does that? They see it all the time. There's another person, if I stand up, I'm going to beat too. I just want to go home and have my ramen noodles, and I just want to get on with my, they're depressed, they're lost, they're hopeless, they just have lost that humanity, that compassion. We still have that around here. I wonder how long I would have it if I lived there and saw the guy sleeping on the cardboard box every single day asking for money. And at first, yeah. Boy, I'd really like to help him get out of this horrible situation. But every time I give him money, I see him back here again with vodka, and it's like, okay, whatever. And that guy over there, I don't know his story, but he'll probably buy vodka too. And pretty soon you just go buy them all, and they're all the same to you. You know, That's the kind of world they're in right now. The sick are there, the poor are there, the, the compassion is gone. And here comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepping into this lost, dying, aching for hope, n- horrible world and all he can see is wounded sheep. It's all he sees. They need help. They need me. Oh man, don't feel like that. I don't want you to be sick anymore. You have your sight. You can hear again. Get up, take your bed. No more paralysis. No more begging for money. You demon for the guy, your demons go into some pigs. You know, that's all he saw. Constant ministry, Constant love for people, whether they followed him or not afterwards. I don't know if I should buy him a sandwich. I don't know if I should give him money. I don't know what they're going to use it for. It's not your problem. It's not your problem. It's that humanity trying to come out of you. That first instinct, and then our flesh, or then our mind, or something gets in the way, and we step back and say, But I don't want to be dumb. I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to be an enabler. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things the world gives us to stop us from doing what that first instinct was. Got to be led of the Spirit. I think that's one of the keys. One thing that, I know we got to wrap it up, but one of the things God has been showing me the last week, especially, is generosity. And I don't know why. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And I'm not talking about tithing. Believe me. I'm not talking about the tithe box at all. I'm talking about just being a generous person in this world. The world is pulling in. They're grabbing their wallets. They're pulling into whatever it is that they own, that they have, that they can control. And there is none of this, there's just very little of this going on right now. I would just encourage you, pray on it, whatever, but just be that generous person, whether that's your time, whether that's opening yourself up emotionally to people and let them and helping them by bearing their burdens with them and listening to them. It could be financial, but I don't know that that's the only reason. It could be a lot of things, but being generous and keeping that generous, soft heart, which is what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing in Jesus right now is he's touching all these people. There's nobody I won't touch. There's nobody I don't want to help. There's nobody I, you know, I'm into everybody kind of thing. I want to bless them. I want to be their help in their time of need. It's the loving kindness of Christ that leads people to repentance. Let's just encourage us all to be generous people in every area of our life, however the Holy Spirit leads you. Anyway, I know that's what he's speaking to me personally, and I'm trying to figure out what that looks like You know, um, every day. So let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, his heart, his love, his compassion, his adoration and devotion to you and to your will. only thinking about others and only thinking about your will for his life and to, to do your will on this earth. That's that's what he said, my, said, do my father's business, to be about my father's business. Lord, I pray the same for us. Help us to be about your business down here. And your business is ministering to people to serve them. Help us to be generous when we're serving God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.